0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, Driving to Treblinka, part of our 2018 programme. Ockham New Zealand Book Award non-fiction winner, Driving to Treblinka, is the personal and profound story of journalist Diana Wichtill's search for her lost father, Ben, a Holocaust survivor who was to follow his wife and children to New Zealand from Canada in 1964, but never arrived. In the course of Witch Tale's quest, she scars the archives, travels the world and unearths the story of her father and his Warsaw family, and their fate at the hands of the Nazis. The New Zealand Listener feature writer has carved a career out of deftly profiling others as well as critiquing television. She now turns her gaze on herself and those closest to her. She speaks with Jeremy Hansen. We hope you enjoy this session.
1: Tēnā koutou called ko Jeremy Hanson toku ingoa. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all here to the session of the Auckland Writers' Festival and to introduce you to writer Diana Wichtel. We'll be taking some questions towards the end of the session, so please have those, those ready and to go to the microphones if you have something you'd like to ask. Diana is the author of Driving to Treblinka, A Long Search for a Lost Father, which this week won the E.H. McCormick Best First Book Award for general non-fiction and the Royal Society to Aparangi Prize for General Nonfiction at the Ockham Book Awards. Diana, congratulations on the prize. Thank you. you. You've worked at The Listener for 30 years as a journalist and as a TV columnist. 34. 34 years. In August. <laughs> what made you want to take, take the leap into doing this much longer book?
2: Well, um, I think I've been sort of researching it all my life. so it was always at the back of my mind, but I just thought probably it would be just something for the family or you know, get it all down one day. But then Mary Varnum from Our Press got in touch and said, I think you've got a strange family history there. Would you like to write about it? And it turned out I did want to write about it, or at least the challenge was laid down. And how could you say no, really? Um, I think I just never assumed anyone would be particularly interested, so it was enough of a push to think would be a good thing
1: to do. You'll probably see as we go on that Diana suffers from chronic modesty. Um, (laughs) Let's recap a little. You last saw your father when you were 13, when you and your mother, brother and sister left Vancouver for New Zealand, and you expected him to follow later. There was a moment in the book, one night as things are unraveling in Vancouver, your your family's had to move house, your mother is planning her escape, as you write, You're watching TV with your father, and a documentary about the Holocaust comes on, which includes footage of the Warsaw Ghetto, and your father tells you, I was there. In the book you write, I thought I knew at least something about his life until I sat with him and saw those pictures. Why do you think he'd told you so little?
2: Well, I mean, I cannot even be sure exactly what he did tell me. I feel like I vividly remember everything, and it was very little. And it would be little things like, You know, we were, I jumped off the train, I rolled down a hill, and I waited to be shot. I remember him saying that. And he was surprised to find himself, with great justification, surprised to find himself still alive. Took off into the forest. He jumped with another man, I don't know who. Uh, I originally thought it was my uncle Paul who also escaped, but Paul survived on the run in the Aryan side of Warsaw, which is equally miraculous, with many lucky escapes. And so I remember that, and then I remember he would tell us sort of funny stories like uh, being in the forest and meeting some young German soldiers and thinking that was it. They were unarmed, and the soldier, you know, they pretended they had guns, and he put his hand in his pocket, you know how you do to pretend you've got a gun, Um, and uh, frightened them. But they were just young guys, and they actually became friends, and these soldiers brought them food. Uh, And he told us about digging up raw potatoes and eating them with the dirt on, which as a child is is an extraordinary thing. But also, I remember asking him questions that I know now would have been terribly painful for him, like, how could you leave your mother on on the train? Because I knew his family went on the train and died. Um, And at the time, to me, as a child who loved her mother... I couldn't imagine, why, how could you leave your mum? And I can't, he just, his answer was always, well, they would shoot you. Why didn't you run away? They would shoot you. Um, you had to look for your opportunity, and he found his, squeezed out of a window on the train. And I later learned from another relative who had heard, was there when my father came back from Europe, that he was very thin, obviously. He was a small man, and he was at that time extremely thin, and, he was pushed out through the window.
1: Were you aware, as he told you these anecdotes, um, that they were significant and they weren't the experiences of a regular parent?
2: Yes. (laughs) I think I was always aware we were not in a situation of regular parents (laughs) from very early. Um, But uh, I think, what, I didn't realize, uh, what I've realized in, in later years is that I think my mother shut it down a lot, the conversations. He would say these things, and they are vividly etched in my mind. But I also have this memory of, don't upset your father, you know, and change the subject. Uh, and I actually now think he would have liked to have talked more. When I think of how he was when he made those statements, it was almost inviting a question and I think he would have liked, and I've read since then, like Lawrence Reese's book about the Holocaust, he was a BBC journalist who interviewed many, many survivors over the years, and he maintained it's a myth that that they didn't want to talk. Some didn't want to talk, but the real problem was that no one wanted to listen. Mm. For whatever reason, it was too hard, too, too difficult.
1: You write in the book that after you came to New Zealand, Your father and your life in Vancouver wasn't something that was often discussed because, as you write, the shaky equilibrium with our new life required that the door to the old one remained closed. And it occurred to me that that was probably what was happening to your father in Vancouver as well. Had he shut the door on his past to the same degree, do you think?
2: Well, do you mean you mean in that, that period if, then?
1: Uh, in both periods, so uh, you were, it was almost like a multi-generational thing yes, where you were yes. both terrified of opening that door because of the havoc that might well, result. Well,
2: right, I think, and that's exactly what I think does get passed down the generations, is that um, you grow up in an atmosphere of not looking back. My mother had her own reasons for not looking back. I think that's why, despite certain inconsistencies in their personalities, why they were together, because they were both kind of had isolated themselves in that way. And yeah, I think a lot of people didn't want to look back at that time, but, you know, and, uh, and also, as you say, when we left, I later learned that he, friends had tried to help him and he shut them all off. Before we left, he refused to let my mother see family friends, she used to have to sneak out. Uh, he was in the process of shutting everyone out. He was getting ill, and we didn't really know that, at least us kids didn't know that, so.
1: What made you want to take the potential risk of writing this book and upsetting that Shakespeare equilibrium as you describe it?
2: I know, what was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the thing is to, probably it's the fault of journalism, because I think the only way I've been able to do journalism and TV reviewing and stuff like that is to be in a state of continual denial that anyone's ever going to read it, otherwise you just become paralyzed, you know. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to call David Seymour that, you know, if I think about it too much, but, um... You <sighs> <laughs> should see my Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I think it requires a certain state of denial, and I think I really was in that, and I think also, going back into the past was a very hypnotic and magical thing to do. I have never done it before, and I got a fellowship, the Grimshaw Sargeson Fellowship, which was wonderful, and sat in a little flat up by Albert Park uh, for four months, no other work, and just went into this really haunted, magical space. So all the time I was doing that, it was very seductive, also painful, but it felt like I was in the parallel universe, that the past was running alongside, and I could dip back into it instead of back there behind a closed door. So um, it was only when I sent the book off, the sort of enormity of it settled upon me and is probably still upon me.
1: <laughs> Could you talk about that a bit more, about that enormity and how it sits with you? Does it feel does it feel like a good thing or a much more complicated thing than that?
2: Yes, well, um, you'd have to ask my family, who are all, you know, enjoy it! But um, it's difficult because I think, mainly because, aside from the fact that it affects other people um, as well, and loyalty to your mother, and my mother's no longer alive, but would she have minded, would my father have minded? They had a dream where I asked him that, and I didn't really get a reply, but um, Yeah, so I think there's all that, but it's also that you change the narrative, like I'd lived with a narrative of what had happened that we came to New Zealand, he was meant to follow, he never did things became strange, we got a few odd letters I knew a little bit, I knew that he had ended up in a mental hospital, but um, I didn't know, my feeling was, what I had conveyed to me was that he was beyond, we couldn't write to him, there was no reaching him. And so it was all, yes that's what happened, it couldn't have been helped. And then when you look into it all and you find it could have been helped and you could have written and how different it could have been I don't know, but there's guilt and you have to rearrange your narrative about what happened and who did what and maybe my mother should have told us more earlier, things like that. So it's a bit of a rearrangement of your narrative of your life, which is quite a, I find, (laughs) disruptive thing to do.
1: How did that, for example, affect your attitude towards your mother, who obviously was experiencing a terrible situation when your father was mentally ill and broke in Vancouver, um, but also didn't tell you or encourage you, as you say in the book, to communicate with him. Um, Did it make things complicated either with her or with the memory of her?
2: Well, not really. I mean, as she grew older, I, and I I was about 12 when this started happening, and I can remember she talked to me about how bad things were um, to a certain extent. She had no one else to talk to, and so I could see her suffering, I could see her weeping and be near to breakdown, really. And then, Later on in life, when I started to not just accept this narrative and think about it a bit more, she was happy for me to, happy is not the right word, but she would sit down with me and let me ask her whatever questions I want. But of course, I think as everyone who's done this sort of thing, you think you've asked all the questions, but you haven't. You think of ones later, why didn't I ask that? Um, So I pushed her quite hard on it all about what she knew and what she thought was going to happen. And I don't judge her, I think she did, all that she could do, really. She was in a desperate situation. Her family in New Zealand, she had a big Catholic family who offered to pay for her to bring us here. Um, But the results were very severe, I think, and perhaps more than she realized, because we never really said goodbye to my father, because I thought he was coming, so it was like, we'll see you soon, you know. Um,
1: Do you think your mother thought he was going to come as well? I asked her
2: that, and she said, yes, she did. Uh, did she want that? Yes, I asked her that too, because there was a fam- one of uh, my step-grandfather who um, I was told rang immigration and said, don't let him in. But a family member who's a lawyer said, that wouldn't have made any difference. But I asked mum, I said, did you want him to come? And she said, yes, they rang her. And she did want him to come, she said, even though it frightened her. The thought of it frightened her. And she also... Um, looked into getting some help from the Canadian Embassy, but there was none on offer. And the sort of sense was that if she left and went back again, that there would be no more rescues, you know. That was it, really. So I could see her situation.
1: She was stuck, in a way. Yeah,
2: she was Mm. stuck. And a woman in those days, she had three children, there was no DPV, she was scrambling, working six days a week for 50 cents an hour or whatever it was in those days. Um, So I can't judge her, I can't judge either of them for anything because of the lives, the hard lives that they had to live.
1: You write in the book that when parents run from their history, they also obliterate the history of their children. How much do you feel this book helped you piece that history back together and ensure that that obliteration wasn't passed on to your kids?
2: Well, I mean, I hope it's done some of that um, because with the best will in the world and the fullest intentions of not repeating that, I would find I was repeating it. You know, the kids would say, why didn't you ever tell me that? And, you know, I I think I say in the book, there's a moment where my grandson said, who's that in the picture? And I I start to speak and find myself, well, how am I going to tell this gorgeous little sunny five-year-old this terrible story? But I think the book and my children, my nieces and nephew, my... Um, grandchildren have taught me that there's more than one narrative and there's the other story as my daughter says he was a badass he survived he had a family you know there's that story he fought in the woods whatever he did I don't know exactly to survive Um, so yeah I think the book has taught me there's always another story and that I was stuck in that narrative of unrelenting misery uh, which is also true but it's not the only story
1: do you think there's something about journalism that attempts to tidy narratives, and that this book was partly a process of you acknowledging that there were many narratives running in tandem with each other?
2: Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's not, um, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, well, some, uh, when I first started writing about this years ago, I wrote a couple of very tentative articles, and one of them was actually about a second-generation group, people of my kind who had that background, and met to laugh and cry and, Say, oh, yes, it was just like that at our place, too, you know. Um, And uh, when I first did that, I remember some colleagues saying, there you go, you got that off your chest, haven't you? (laughs) And um, there's no closure with it. So I think there are no neat endings. uh, And I don't want there to be closure, really. I think I want to stay in that space, what Daniel Mendelsohn called the uh, stream of history that's always running along there because that's where my father is, my family is. That's where I have some contact with them. So why would I want to shut that door again?
1: We also do this in families though, don't we? We, um, I was thinking of wedding speeches and um, also speeches at funerals and things like that. We tidy narratives there so people become almost one note to a certain degree. Mm. And has this changed the way you do journalism and allowed you to kind of embrace more messiness there or were you already doing that anyway?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to actually think about that and wait and see. Uh, I think um, I've always thought things are very complicated and people are, that's why, you know what it's like interviewing people. The wonderful thing about it is how complicated they are. It's never a tidy story, is it? And a journalist is always looking for the little bits of slippage and the little bits that don't fit. Um, so I think I've always been doing that. And I actually think that goes back to... A lot of the way I approach journalism goes back to coming from a weird family. Um, we had three different accents in the house. Um, so early on, you were aware of language, and it's, we found it funny, you know? My father would speak slightly, you know, what's going on in dat house? And we'd say, which house, Dad? You know, we'd tease him, and he couldn't say, th. Um, uh, he couldn't, yeah, so there were certain things he couldn't say. Teeth, he'd say, teeth. And so we'd tease him about that, but, um, and I also think, because we were in a family where nothing added up, uh, we were always kind of mystified. What is this story with dad? Why is he different from all these other fathers? Uh, and he had certain, he wasn't, he was, he had a wonderful group of friends, and, but he didn't like knocks on the door. He didn't like the phone ringing unexpectedly. There were just all sorts of things that didn't quite add up. And uh, as I say with my mother, she was very much, let's keep things, Let's not look too hard at anything. So I think you became sort of aware there were stories there. I was always curious and nosy and trying to figure it all out. Mm-hmm.
1: You're right that remembering is an act of self loathing, a sentence that really jumped out to me when I was reading the book. Did it feel like that a lot of the time that you yeah. were writing it?
2: Yeah, there were times when I found myself like you'd open a, I was always sending off for stuff and something would arrive in the inbox and you'd open it up and it would either be, I'd be literally running around the room in joy that I'd found out some information or else I'd just find myself groaning aloud because um, it would be something that just was a dagger to the heart, really. Um,
1: Can you talk about an example that made you groan?
2: Well, an example would have been uh, I went to the, my father spent some time in Montreal after we left, so eventually I got in touch with a Jewish society in Montreal and found a wonderful guy who became quite interested in the story. And he had nothing on his records at the place where he was, but he went to another uh, affiliated sort of group and he came back and he said, we have a hit, you know. And so I opened this up and my father had gone to seek help to come to Canada. So there was this document, it didn't have a lot on it, but it just said wants to go to, what to leave Canada and come to New Zealand, wants to go to New Zealand, and that sentence, because I think part of the narrative I had was maybe the responsibility of the family had been too much for him, maybe he didn't in the end try to come, but he did. And so that's something that you then have to live with, that he was trying to join us, you know?
1: You were going to read from the book, and I thought now might be a good time to read a part.
2: This is from uh, a chapter called the Bar Mitzvah. Excuse any words that are not English and how I pronounce them. Baruch Adonai Elohenu, Malach HaOlam. My father is suffering. He's trying to hold on to a candle and keep it together. His hands, his voice, his whole body is shaking. I'm nine and not embarrassed by him, even though there are times when I am. The intense foreignness of the occasion and the astonishing sight of my father in a prayer shawl and skull cap, and kippah, have made him seem less like himself and somehow more. I've never seen him wear a hat, let alone a yarmulke. I've never seen anybody wear one. We've never been to a synagogue before. My cousin Jerry is 13 and now he is a man. This is a very big deal, apparently. I haven't seen Uncle Si and Auntie Molly since they visited briefly when I was five. I'm nine when this takes place, by the way. We, never, we have never met our cousins, Jerry and Linda. Vancouver isn't that far away from New York, Jersey, but in the fraught geography of our family, it has been too far. The trip to New Jersey has been a long time in the planning. My mother has bought a new outfit and had her teeth capped and her hair done. Roz and I have had our hair permed, and we have new party dresses. My sister's is satiny and eggshell blue. Mine is white and gauzy, with embroidered rosebuds on the bodice. I think we look nice. They live in a mansion, my father declares. Wait till you see them. They have servants. They will spoil you rotten. He is giving us this gift of this brother who is alive, this brother who is a success. With a mix on my part of wild anticipation and inexplicable dread, we fly to New York. It's my first time on a plane. Jeff, who is about to turn two, won't sit still and is into everything. Later, my mother will find airline cutlery is stashed in her bag. She doses him with phenobarbital, and eventually he's rendered unconscious on my seat, so I spend the rest of the flight wandering up to the toilet for want of anything else to do. Auntie Molly is there to meet us at the airport with her chauffeur. By now, such has been my father's build-up, I'm expecting a New York version of the Queen, but Molly in her casual slacks and odd footwear uh, is, you know, just pretty ordinary. She has a distracted air of a woman with the social event of her life to plan. When we get to the house, it is vast with woodland behind. We walk into the atrium, which has a marble floor, the stage I will discover for family dramas that outdo even ours. We're given into the care of some sort of handyman who takes us off with my mother for ice cream. The cone has eight scoops of different flavors. Everything here comes in many flavors. It soon becomes clear we won't do. My mother's sent to have her hair redyed dyed in brown and blonde stripes, and Molly gives her one of her dresses to wear. Roz and I must have new dresses too. We're taken to a fancy shop where a woman looks at my spherical body and thinks what it needs is a stiffly crinolined cloud of chiffon with spaghetti straps. With my gappy front teeth and puppy fat, I look like a chubby chip- chipmunk in a tutu. Roz, my sister, looks grown up and pretty. When we go to the temple, I'm transfixed by the names inscribed on the wall of my dead grandmother and grandfather, Jacob and Rosalia, and their children, Dad and Sis, brothers and sisters, Morris, Heniak, Shimon, Tola, and Fella. Dad has told me these names, but I've never seen them written down before. The bar mitzvah is followed by a ball in one of the fanciest places in New York, the Pierre Hotel, across from Central Park. The hotel modeled on a French chateau has the motto, from this place, hope beams. We're driven there in a black limousine. Outside, the city sparkles and hums. For some reason, the ballroom is decorated as a resort with floral beach umbrellas. I spend most of the night alone. Still, I'm allowed to wear lipstick. The older girls jump all over Jerry, perching on his knee and kissing him for the camera. Late in the evening, Paul, my father's uncle, sweeps me up and waltzes me around the floor. I recognize him from the photographs of Dad and him in Sweden after the war. He survived too. His dancing style is so frenetic, the rough edges of my crinoline rub my skin raw where he grasps my waist. I escape as fast as I can and put on more lipstick. The photographs of the night present a united family front. In one, Molly, Si, and my mother sit at a table while Paul and his wife Lillian stand behind. Paul is saying something and Dad is shooting him a skeptical sideways look. In another family shot, Auntie Molly, in her strapless white ball ground, is as radiant as a bride. Later, she'll ask to be buried in this dress. Sai, stylish in his graying crew cut, looks away from the camera. My mother and father have their arms around Linda and the taut suggestion of a smile. I look like I'm trying to behind, hide behind Roz. Jerry, the bar boy, fixes the camera with a quizzical, challenging gaze. At some point in the evening he will go AWOL, taking off with friends for cocktails at the Copacabana next door. After the ball, we're supposed to stay on for a few days, but everything implodes. My brother Geoffrey turns too, but there's no party. There's yelling behind the closed door of the library. My father goes home to Vancouver by himself without saying goodbye. We stay on for a day or two, then also leave on the long train journey north. There was an indelible power in the sight of my father looking so alien, so Jewish, so fragile that day at the bar mitzvah. I know now that he was being honored as Jerry's only surviving uncle on his father's side. He was given an aliyah, an ascending to Israel, or in this case, to the bimah, the pulpit, to chant a blessing. He would have been called by his Hebrew name, Ben Ben Yaakov. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed now and forever. He was doing a good deed for what was left of his family, fulfilling an obligation. The bar mitzvah marked the peak of Uncle Si's fortunes. Five years after this, he was in financial trouble. Jerry had to use his bar mitzvah cash to finish college. After the bar mitzvah, money still arrived from New Jersey for a time. But Uncle Si and Auntie Molly never visited us in Vancouver again.
1: Thank you, Diana. But Much of what you write about there from your childhood perspective feels like a kind of -of out-of-body experience to a reader. And I wanted to ask you about another out-of-body experience in the book, which is the strangeness of the moment when you learn your father has died. You're flatting with your sister in Auckland and your mother's moved to Japan with a new partner. Um, Can you talk about how you received that news? And also I wanted to ask you after that if you're amazed that you kind of coped through that period. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we were flat. I suppose I was 19, uh, and my sister was a little bit older, and uh, there was a phone call in the middle of the night, and I think, as I say in the book, 2 a.m., you know it's never good news when the phone rings, and it was Uncle Si and Auntie Molly ringing to say that my father had died a few months previously, uh, And we were so shocked. We talked to them, and all I can remember really is Uncle Si saying, never forget you're a witch tale, which made a big impression on me. And I think we said, well, he said, he didn't leave anything, only a few papers. And we were so stunned. We never thought to say, well, can we have those papers? I think he gave, they'd moved because they'd fallen on hard times, too. He gave, my sister and I his phone number, and we lost that immediately. So when you say coping, we probably weren't. Uh, and then the weird thing was that after my mother, we rang my mother in Japan, and she didn't offer to come down. I suppose if we'd asked her to, she would have. She came down later, and we had letters back and forth. But there was no recognition of this event having taken place. You know, Normally when someone dies, there's flowers, there's cards, you, people ring up and say, something, but I didn't sort of take it in at the time that this just fell into a silence. He was, in that regard, his death resembled that of his relatives in Poland, just, he was gone. There was no grave that we knew of, there was no place to mourn, and no one was mourning for him. But because our lives had been so scattered and and we were just surviving day to day as students, living in a flat with no parents. <laughs> um, we just carried on. And it took many years I think before we kind of, where I began to question that and come to terms with it.
1: You actually write in the book that your life never feels like your life until you have your first baby. Um, and I wondered, wanted to ask you what it is about that experience that grounded you and how that new life contrasted with the old one which in comparison suddenly sounds um, as if you're drifting in a sort of void.
2: Yeah, well, I think very much, I certainly felt like I was drifting in those years. I didn't actually sort of feel like I existed. I was going to university and doing things, but um, I just felt like I was kind of um, living from day to day. I didn't feel actively depressed or anything, but I certainly didn't feel I had much agency in the world. Uh, The world seemed quite kind of absurd, and there wasn't much point in, in doing much, I think. I mean, I always loved reading, and I did my university, but that was it. But I think having a child, uh, you can't really deny you exist after that, (laughs) because there's the proof. Uh, And of course, without any thought at all, I named him after my father. And so yeah, I think that was a moment of beginning to come back to life a bit, and realizing you could create something out of all this chaos.
1: Investigating your father's life also meant investigating the trauma of the Holocaust. And it's a subject in the book you admit to becoming obsessed with, but it's also a subject that's so incomprehensible that you say you get so used to nothing making sense that you stop asking questions. Were there times when you worried that writing the book would expose you to too much of that trauma and that it may be a story that you would prefer not to know?
2: No, I don't think I ever felt that about reading about the Holocaust. I remember very, very young, My mother was reading everything she could get her hands on, I think in an attempt to try and understand, because they didn't really talk about it, what my father had gone through. And so I was reading her books like um, Exodus. And I remember very early on just thinking, well, if they went through that, I have to be able to read about it. And that was my feeling always. It was just beyond cowardly not to be able to read what they had to live through. That didn't mean there weren't periods where I just backed away from it for a while. But essentially, you know, I haven't read all the books, but who could, but um, if there's a Holocaust movie or if there's a book that comes my way that sounds like it might offer something, and they all do, even the ones that, you know, Martin Amis' zone of interest, most people felt he'd rather overreached himself, but I still find you get something out of someone's attempt to grapple with it, Uh, So, and I still do. Uh, I find it hard not to pick those
1: up. You write in the book about how there is research that suggests that trauma can be passed from generation to generation and even if a parent shuts the door on conversations about a difficult subject that there's something in our genes that hands it on. Um, Do you feel you'd inherited some of your father's trauma?
2: Well yeah and I mean I think uh, I once interviewed, a while back, Richard Dawkins, and I, of course, whenever you get someone like that, an expert in epigenetics, I wanted to ask him about that, and he was a little bit dismissive of the idea of the genetic passing on. He said, yes, possibly for a generation or two, but it's not a permanent alteration of your DNA. Um, but that did at least configure with what I'd always felt that somehow things are passed on at a kind of cellular level, you absorb them, and some of that's osmosis through unregarded cues in the family as well. I'm not saying it's all genetic, but um, yeah, and I certainly, anxiety, (laughs) my children will tell me I'm paranoid, Um, and you know, when I read about experiments with birds, finding they would respond to trauma that they'd never been exposed to, but their parents had, it, it makes sense to me, yeah. I think there is a certain passing on of that.
1: And is there any alleviation of that trauma when you've worked through it in the way you have in this written form?
2: No, not really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Does it become easier to live with?
2: Uh, it's hard to really, yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, because I do believe knowing about things is better than not knowing. I mean, I posed that question at one point, And for me, as a journalist, I've always been nosy and it's not for everyone. I know people who don't want to dig too far into things, or don't feel they can. Um, but for me, if, if there's information out there, I want to know it. And I've never regretted. The more I know, the, it doesn't explain anything. I think with a story like the Holocaust, I feel actually the more I find out, the less explicable it is. Uh, there's no explanation for it. But I want to know as much as I can. Yeah, it helps me at some level.
1: You were also a Jewish teenager in New Zealand without knowing much about that part of your heritage. And to make things worse, you're in a country that doesn't really want to talk about it or many other things for that matter. And you wrote this piece that really um, struck me where you talk about feeling stuck in a sunny, suffocating South Pacific present tense. You also write about casual incidents of anti-Semitism you've experienced and about how your daughter at one point wants to write a university essay about anti-semitism but she's told she can't have experienced it in New Zealand. Why do you think we don't want to talk about difficult things like that here?
2: Yeah well I mean I did just think well New Zealand is just so far away from that history and it wasn't, um, that's understandable, it wasn't very immediate here but since then, you know, and even since doing this book, I've spoken to so many people who have connections to that background here, far more than I ever somehow imagined. Every talk I go to, I find people um, who have parents from Poland or, you know, some aspect of that. And I think, yeah, as I've gone on, I feel like, it, I don't know, I am put it down a bit to being from pioneering roots and, you know, a place where everyone's come from somewhere else and, the desire to just look forward, not look back, uh, not get caught up. It's an that's where the anti-intellectualism comes in too, I think, not wanna get caught up in something really difficult and complex. Um, just be like Mike Hosking and, you know, don't think about it too much. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> there I go again. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, uh, and and also since the reading I've done more recently, I do think um, things are not talked about because people don't want to listen, and it's not necessarily anyone's fault, but you know, I remember when I was much younger and we'd all be going around a group saying what our fathers did or what our families were, and "Eh, my father was a holocaust survivor, and people just, of course they do, they don't quite know what to say about that, so it's a conversation stopper. Um, And I think you learn, oh. And I remember once or twice reading Holocaust books at university and rushing up to talk to my lecturer about it and he was just like, mm, "Yeah, okay, thanks, bye. You know, he wasn't really into talking about it either. So it was a learned thing that you didn't try and talk about it too much.
1: And is that related to the difficulty you had in talking about your father? Because you talk in the book about the things we tell ourselves to get by and that you'd also, you'd always convinced yourself that you'd done a good job of dodging the subject of your father, but then, When you raised this topic in the book a lot of friends told you that that was not actually the case
2: yes I've had all sorts of responses (laughs) like one said you know I always knew never to ask you about your father because and I said why well because you would get upset and and I remember my voice would tend to get shaky when I had to talk about it completely involuntary you know just find I'd get ups I would get but I thought I kind of hid that very well but obviously not And, you know, someone else wrote to me and said, yes, you know, now that I think of it back in the day, there was something. I mean, you function socially, (laughs) this person said. (laughs) Good to know.
1: (laughs) It's a low bar, but well done. (laughs) It's a fairly
2: low bar. (laughs) So, yeah, I think all those things contribute. I'm sure my reaction to being asked contributed as much as anything to people not... Uh, that I was speaking to not continuing, continuing the conversation because I probably looked mad and I probably was a bit mad on the subject. And they probably thought, okay, let's not go there.
1: Despite all this, there's a, um, a really lovely part of the book is how the investigations that you put into it also put you in closer contact with your Jewish Jewish roots and your own Jewish heritage. Can you talk about what it was like um, coming to live more fully into that identity as you did this research or did you feel you were already pretty much there when you began.
2: No, not at all. I mean, we had no upbringing. My father never denied he was Jewish, but he was an atheist, and my mother was a lapsed Catholic, so we just existed in the spiritual vacuum that I still inhabit. And uh, somebody has also written in with advice on how to save my soul, but you you always get that. um, Yeah, so I think I really was. I, I think I thought I knew a bit about it, but I didn't, and I'm not religious, so... I haven't investigated the religious side of it, but it was finding the Auckland second generation group, which I went along as a journalist to. to my sister had found it first, and I went along. And I thought, oh, this will make a good story. I had no idea I would need such a group myself, or maybe I was putting out feelers. And I remember I rang them up and they said, um, they were most suspicious of a journalist coming along, and said, uh, you know, watch yourself. Uh, watch what you write about us. And so I went along and they were wonderful. The minute I got in, their sense of humor, the, the general atmosphere of, that I remember from around our dinner table, really, um, was there. And I just instantly wanted to be in that group. And I learned instantly some very important things, such as in families like ours, there's often one person who becomes what they call the memorial candle. And I think this is true, not just in my kind of family, one, the the one person who's doing the genealogy, the one person who's interested in the history, who's asking the questions, and maybe other people in the family not so interested. So I learned about that, and I also learned that you can grow up in the same family and have two very different experiences. It's almost as if you've grown up in two different families, and I've certainly experienced that in my family too. The parents I have are not the parents someone else in my family might have known or experienced. Yeah, and so, I mean, I'm very connected to the people I've met in those groups, Um, some like me who aren't religious or who have a Jewish father, not mother, and it's led to us, you know, talking and exploring um, and going along to things. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be interested in the religious side, and in the process of doing this, my partner has also discovered uh, his mother had Jewish background that was never really converted to Christianity, well, didn't convert, was brought up a Christian. And uh, he's discovered uh, relatives in Israel, so we've reconnected with some pretty wonderful cousins uh, in Israel on his side. So yeah, I think those connections, you drop a, somebody said you throw a pebble into history and all sorts of things ripple out. So yeah, there's a whole lot of new connections and I think the next generation is busy exploring that too for themselves.
1: It's interesting you talk about going to that meeting and feeling immediately at home, as if there's some cultural imprint that's been passed to you without um, any effort of communicating that um, previously. How do you think that happens?
2: Well, I think, you know, again, that thing of coming from Vancouver to here, that door that shut, was between two cultures as well. Because the culture in our home was mainly my father's friends, my mother had a couple of New Zealand friends but she mainly entertained his friends from Germany. She could never understand how he had German friends. He had friends from everywhere, and um, he was always bringing people home. And so I think there was an atmosphere, and it's got me into trouble in the past, because one of the things about it was that you could sit around the table and have an argument and thump the table. It never got personal, and no one ever got offended. And here, if you try and do that, it's like, ooh, you're being a bit aggressive, aren't you? You know, you can't really do that. So there was no sort of European shouting. And uh, and I missed that, I think I didn't realize I missed it, but I did. Uh, Because my mother's family, wonderful, big Catholic family, terribly loyal and terrific and hilariously funny, Um, but they um, weren't great talkers about stuff. Uh, And my grandmother, for instance, had two daughters die out of her eight children one when she was in her thirties and one in her fifties, and those names were never mentioned again in my grandmother's presence. That's how she dealt with things. And I remember my mother telling us when we first came, don't mention Auntie June, who was a nun who died in her thirties. And we, Okay, that's how you do it here, so very different.
1: Did you in the course of writing the book and since speculate on the cause of your father's poor mental health? Do you think it was the trauma that he suffered um, as a teenager in the forest in Poland or was there a family propensity towards that? Do you have any ideas? Was he was it in his 20s actually. Things? In his 20s. Yeah and
2: I think that is significant. Um, uh, you can't generalise at all but I think being slightly older was harder. Like some of the most resilient people were like younger and could kind of remake their lives more easily perhaps but um, yeah. Um, sorry what was the question?
1: (laughs) Oh do you think do you think it was that that caused his mental oh yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. no that was
2: interesting too because I don't know Uh, you can never separate I could never separate I didn't know him beforehand he'd had all that trauma he was very jolly when we were young and sang and played musical instruments that kind of abated as he got older and things got hard and for me it was the he'd survived everything once he'd rebuilt his life and then when things started to go wrong yet, again, and I think this is not uncommon with some people who've gone through that kind of trauma, he didn't have the resilience to do it all again. And so I'm sure that was a big part of it. Um, there might be, there were physical ailments, he had Parkinson's disease and he had possibly um, arteriosclerosis and things like that, You know, hardening of the arteries of the brain. So, um, there were things like that that could have affected it. But, one thing that gave me a clue was when I talked to my cousin Joe, who was 17 when the survivors came back from Europe, and his mother, Sabina, was my father's aunt who'd left Poland in the 20s and lost all her siblings except for Uncle Paul. Uh, There were 10 of them, and she lost everyone but Uncle Paul. And uh, she told Joe, erist unkrank man, he is a sick man, when he came back. So that told me that she knew something of him as a young, as a boy and a young man. And she saw something very different when he arrived back after the war.
1: It seems incredibly unfair, doesn't it, that he survived what he survived and then couldn't manage his way through something that I guess nowadays we would see as much more manageable.
2: Absolutely, he wouldn't go to the doctor. I mean, this was, This is where I don't judge my mother, because um, the doctor, who was a family friend, was ringing up saying, you've got to get Ben to go to bring bring him into the office, and she couldn't get him to go, and he wouldn't ask friends for help or anything like that, and wouldn't let her seek any help. So yeah, she was really, really cornered in that regard. Uh, And there was no help. I mean, those, as far as I know, there was no therapy. There was no offers of counseling for people who'd gone through trauma, you were just meant to get on with it. Uh, and it was an embarrassing subject at that time. I mean, up until the Ackman trial in 61, the word Holocaust wasn't even really used. There was just the war. And uh, there was ignorance about what had actually happened to those people. Um, whereas these days, you know, hopefully they would have got some therapy, some offers of help. Whether he would have taken it again, I don't know. Uh, So it is very hard, and uh, after I spoke to Kim Hill, right after the book was released, a psychologist wrote it, chastising her for implying that his mental condition might have been due to the trauma of the war, and saying it was, you know, probably pre-existing.
1: You mean that didn't stand up in his opinion theoretically?
2: Yes, yeah, Um, I'm not sure what that was based on. And she, in her inimitable way, you know, replies, well, I think it might have something to do with having his entire family murdered by the Nazis. <laughs> and I was like, good on you, Kim. <laughs>
1: yeah. Towards the end of the book, you write um, at the beginning of a chapter, this is what I know about my father. And this is not to undermine the achievement of the book, but the list is about that long. Yes. And I wondered if there were times while you were writing it that you felt that it was an almost futile quest because it had been too long and there was so little that you could actually find out about him?
2: Yes, well, absolutely. And I remember when Mary did first speak to me, I said, well, it could be a very, very short book, because I really don't know much. And, of course, dealing with a publisher is a very galvanizing experience, having a deadline. So I did redouble my efforts. But also, I started talking about it in my family a lot more. And. as a result of this, my daughter and my niece were there one day, and I was typically saying, I've just sent off a death certificate, I can't find anything, and they were just aghast at me, and they said, what? You cannot not know where your father is buried, that is absurd. Um, You have got to try harder, you've got to do more. And again, the scales fell from my eyes. I thought, I've accepted this narrative, oh yes, I'm gonna send off, and I won't be able to find out anything. So once again, it's that thing of what you've got used to. And I have got used to not knowing. And when they said that, I thought, yeah, that is really bad. And I've had wonderful help from my brother-in-law who is a lawyer and kind of pointed me in some better directions and wonderful support and help. Chris saying, yes, we are going to Poland and things like that. So yeah, took a kick kick up the bum, really.
1: I wanted to ask you about those trips to Poland because in some ways they felt um, more dispiriting than illuminating. Did it feel that way to you?
2: Um, I think they were both. I think the first time I was utterly unprepared and we just bumbled in there. We only had four or five days there and typically decided to do a ludicrous amount of activity. We went to Auschwitz, we went to Treblinka. In Auschwitz you can do on a tour. So we got into a van with other people and drove there and had the day there and that was a just a very disorienting experience uh, because you know where you are and there's heart-wrenching things like the piles of children's shoes and, you know, hair that have been cut off. And, you know, it's, it's devastating. But you're also going through this bunch of tourists following a guide holding up an umbrella. Uh, and it's just trooping along, everyone looking kind of shell-shocked. So it was a very odd experience, and then we, but Tre- Treblinka was where my family was murdered, and that ha- has been destroyed in 1943. after they'd killed as many people as they could. They pretty much destroyed it. And so everything there is symbolic. They've made a memorial, and there's stones and a symbolic crem- cremation pit and things. And we went there on a beautiful, sunny day, and poor Chris had to drive us there because there was no other way for us to get there in this old car that we picked up at 10 o'clock at night from a guy in a crumpled suit, and it had a GPS that didn't work, so we ended up lost in the countryside, having to ask these farmers, which way to the death camp, basically? (laughs) Treblinky? (laughs) And um, we got, you know, finally got there. I kept saying, we need to turn back, we need to turn back, but we got there. So that was a stunning experience, I think. And then we stayed in the Jewish quarter, what had been Kazimierz, the Jewish quarter of Krakow, when we were there. And there's been this revival, so there's all these Jewish shops and restaurants and little figures of Jews, and no Jews, really. Um, And the whole thing is like a kind of, people have called it Jurassic Park, and things like that. Um, And a lot of Jewish visitors love going there, because it does give you a sense of what the place looked like then but there's also what I call the slippage, like these little figurines of Jews holding money bags and things. And you think, is it nostalgia or is it anti-Semitism? And I think it's a mix of both. Uh, one scholar said that you lose a whole community like that, it's like a phantom limb. So the place is feeling this absence, but equally the way that it's represented is very disorienting. But the second time we went, we were much prepared, we had a guide and I met lots more Polish people. I sat down and talked to a righteous Gentile a, who as a boy, his family had saved his Jewish friend. He was a Pole, but his family had risked instant death by saving his friends, so we had all different, again, it's that thing of there's more than one story, and I felt a lot more akin to the place, to the point where I said to Chris, you know, maybe we could come and live here for six months and work, and he's like, no. <laughs> but I did feel a lot more at home there and I realised I want to go back and it's a richer experience than that first slightly horrifying time, yeah.
1: Thank you, Diana. Thank you for coming, everybody. Diana will be signing books in the foyer immediately after this. Um, Could you please give her a big hand?
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and Soundcloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.